0: Well, I think, I mean, I mean just, just looking at the movies, if you were to ask me, you know, what keeps me up at night? Well, my first response would be I, I always sleep well at night. But mm-hmm. I think if I were to lose sleep at night, it would be on the supply of films, not mm-hmm. the demand. You know, and I think what we've proven in the last few years is that our audiences never left us. Mm-hmm. They just want more movies.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. This week, once again, joined by my colleague and co host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. And in this week's episode, we are going to be going the latest quarterly earning reports in the world of theatrical exhibition. We've got updates from Cinemark, Kinepolis, and Cineplex. In this episode and in our feature interview, we have a special conversation that Rebecca Pauly had with VIEW International Chief Executive Officer, Tim Richards. That's coming up at the second half of this episode and of course topping off the conversation we are going to be going over our final forecast for dune part two coming out this weekend and finally finally getting us out of the release calendar doldrums a highly anticipated new title coming to a theater near you rebecca i'm excited i finally found tickets but it might not matter because i think we're going to a secret screening of this on Wednesday. I'm so excited. Do we know that yet? It'll like the screening would have passed by the time this episode's up there. Yeah. For our listeners, Regal is reopening its Times Square location.
2: Or is there or doing I mean if they kept it open, it would just had tarp and construction right. stuff yeah. kind of all it's over. It's gonna be
1: the let's say the relaunch, the redesign. So we're excited to see that location. I haven't seen it in a while. I think last time I was there was for the Napoleon press screening back in November or October. Anyway, they're having an event. There's a secret screening. It's on Wednesday. Rebecca and I both think it's Dune part two. I think it's going to be really funny if it's not.
2: Well, I don't know what else it could be, but I'm just excited that Dune is finally coming out. It feels like, oh, February. My goodness. I'm similarly in the situation of glad that we are potentially slash hopefully doing this screening on Wednesday because, yeah, that search for premium tickets, it's a hot the search ticket. is real. It's, I mean, yeah. Daniel, can I ask you, how, how in the heck is this our job writing about this industry and writing about box office forecasts and pre-sales and we don't buy our tickets for these things earlier? In we
1: should be better we about better. this. Yeah, I finally just found the first decent ticket. Uh, for a public IMAX screening for doing part two in New York City. I have to wait till next Wednesday to see it in IMAX. We might have already seen it by then. Again, we'll figure it out. But if you want to hear our reactions, To dune part two don't forget to tune in next week where we will not only be speaking about the sequel we'll have two special guests friend of the podcast max every and the author of the oral history of david lynch's dune is going to be joining us to speak a little bit about the box office for the sequel and going over everything in the world of dune in the movies and we have the one interview we've been fighting to have on this podcast for months Rebecca, you got them. You found them. They're coming next week.
2: Our VP of sales, Patricia, found them. So, shout out to Patricia once again for finding us the team that designed the Dune 2 popcorn bucket.
1: I can't wait. They put it out into the universe and we spoke with them earlier today. Yes. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Dune 2 popcorn bucket, but were afraid to ask, you'll hear us ask those questions in next week's podcast. But all of that is coming in the future. Rebecca, we've got uh, news to go over and financial reports to read. (laughs) Better better
2: than news, financial reporting.
1: I know. I know. It's wonderful. But let's let's do the news before we just drone on talking about percentages and EBITDA. Or our favorite thing to report on. On the news side of things, a uh, cool little story that happened last week. Filmmaker Jason Reitman, part of a coalition of 35 filmmakers that have just acquired Westwood's historic village theater and iconic movie palace, 93-year-old history operating as a movie theater here in Los Angeles. That's going to continue doing a mixture of first-run films and repertory programming in the future. That includes 35 millimeter, 70 millimeter, and digital projection. Great news for movie lovers in the Los Angeles area. Good news, filmmakers coming together, buying a historic movie theater, standing up for exhibition. I love to see stories like this. Uh, It's always sad when we have a historic movie palace going dark that won't be happening with the Village Theater over in Westwood.
2: The only thing that I'm sad about is that we're on the wrong coast and we'll probably never be able to go, but I would not be able to give up my New York art house cinemas for anything. So at the end of the day, do you know the Metrograph is doing an upcoming series on movies about or involving pigs?
1: No, that's, that's what the curation team is doing over there.
2: And apparently uh, at at film forum starting this week, there's a Japanese horror film series, which I hate that all the good rep stuff is happening right when movies start coming (laughs) out again, you think they could have done it a little earlier, but that is to say they are screening Godzilla several times. So you could see it for the first time on the big screen.
1: Los Angeles, eat your heart out. You can't mm-hmm. get anywhere near us in repertory programming. But uh, yeah, uh, theaters going up, repertory programming still kicking. First run titles getting an injection of adrenaline this weekend with the release of Dune Part 2. Our latest forecast, which you can read over at boxofficepro.com, has an opening weekend range between 65 and $80 million, spurred on significantly by Advance. Pre-sales in premium formats, and the domestic theatrical run, we have a range here between one hundred sixty-five to two hundred and fifteen million. That's where we expect Dune Part Two to end up. It's hard to come up with this one, of course, because Dune Part One was released day and date on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. HBO yeah. Max no
2: Almost does not count. Anyhow. Yeah,
1: it doesn't. Yeah, that's uh, that's part of the asterisk void in terms of reporting box office, when nothing made sense. Fortunately, this one's going to be theatrically exclusive for a while, and we've both got tickets. I'm excited. Are
2: you going to buy one of the popcorn tubs if you uh, end up seeing it at an AMC? Where is your ticket to, to see
1: it? It's going to be at the AMC Lincoln Square in that nice IMAX. They've got IMAX 70 millimeter. Mm, uh, so I'm going, oh uh, going on film. I'm looking forward to it. And I do have to say, I also have a ticket to see it in Dolby Cinema. Clearly, I've just exposed myself on re-upping my A-list subscription to be able to finance two premium tickets in a week. But I am going to see it in Dolby Cinema in that cinema location as well. I'm really excited. I actually made it to the movies for the first time last weekend as like a paying moviegoer. Rebecca, I saw Driveaway Dolls, the new movie from uh, Ethan Cohen.
2: You were one of uh a Decently small number of yeah. people, but uh, you know, it looks like it's just very, you know, kind of small, small film, small scale, small scope. Definitely, uh, what do you think of it? Eh.
1: <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> let's, that was, let's that, move that was on. the box
2: office, that was the box yeah, office, yeah,
1: yeah, that eh. was it. You know, unfortunately, the theatrical rollout for that was also eh, it only, I think, made like 2200 screens. It was a weird sort of moderate rollout from Focus Features, yeah. I think it
2: came in at like down at gosh, spot number nine. It oh. came in it came in underneath Wonka on around the same number of screens.
1: That's not good. But the movie wasn't very good either. Sorry. I love my coin brother or brothers, plural or singular. I love what they do. But this one, hey, swing and a miss. It happens sometimes. Let's move on and go over the latest earnings reports here because there is a lot of news and weird acronyms with financial information that we need to go over. Let's start. With Cinemark, the number three circuit in the nation reporting its uh, Q4 figures, what did things look like for the circuit based out of Plano, Texas?
2: So for Cinemark, uh, what we're seeing kind of on a macro level, obviously, is uh, continued growth since... The year that we don't want to talk about, the P word, all that good stuff. For full year 2023, the circuit owned 3.1 billion total revenue, which is up a full 25% from last year and within 7% of the last full pre-pandemic year, 2019. They also achieved their all-time high, uh, food and beverage. My goodness, not food and vegetables. So they are in Texas and Texas stuff loves pickles and movie theaters. Their all-time high F&B per cap. You-
1: buy vegetables in Texas that aren't fried? Is that that something they do there? Do they even sell them? If they're pickled, maybe, yeah. Maybe if they're pickled. Slathered in cheese. There we go. That queso sauce. Um, I'm not going to knock it. That's uh fine. We love our Uh friends in Texas. We're just playing somewhere.
2: Oh, no. I'll cover anything in cheese. I'll eat it. But Daniel, as as you know, uh, within the past – Oh Gosh, was it last year, two years ago, there was a, a changeover in leadership at Cinemark with longtime CEO Mark Zarati uh, stepping down and being replaced by Sean Gamble, who uh, at the time, you know, was the CFO of the company. So one of the things that was talked about during this earnings call is, you know, just from the way we've been looking at things from our perspective, Daniel, the last few years, it's been kind of a rebuilding Period for per Cinemark, they launched a very big uh, rebranding effort. You know, kind of a you know new CEO getting the house in order sort of thing. That did prove, per the numbers we got on the earnings call, uh, to be quite effective. The loyalty program, the United States version of that, went up nearly twenty percent. Latam more than forty five. Web and app traffic up over thirty percent, like double engagement on social media. So. Yeah, the efforts on the branding and communication side are definitely paying off and they are kind of moving back into growth mode. Obviously, not anything, you know, particularly specific, but he says, quote from Sean Gamble, is that we've reactivated the development pipeline. So yeah, they're going to be getting into uh, into newer, bigger and better projects. And that actually includes opening to, cinema entertainment centers, uh, I believe no, by the end of 2014 No, getting
1: into the cinema mm-hmm. entertainment business. Wow. Suck that in there. Everyone's mm-hmm. jumping in. We, we were seeing B&B going to the cinema entertainment center business, Megaplex over in Utah. Now Cinemark, this has to be the trend of the year so far.
2: God bless that Texas real estate. Actually, the cinema entertainment center played an interesting role as well in the earnings call from Cineplex, our, our neighbors to the north. So, uh, one of the things that has really helped Cineplex thrive over the years is that it's an extremely diversified company. They obviously have cinemas. They have cinema entertainment centers. They distribute Lionsgate movies in Canada. They have a digital sign company. They, they do a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. One of those things, uh, as you know, Daniel was Player One Entertainment Group, which basically makes some of the like arcade games. And stuff
1: yeah it was a really interesting business decision they had some years ago right so they, uh-huh. they had cinema entertainment centers some standalone just family entertainment centers yeah some
2: without cinemas at all yeah so
1: they, they went into this like out of home entertainment destination strategy up there in Canada and then they acquired a company that made the video game machines for those centers to not only operate within the, their own centers they also uh-huh. sold or leased some of these arcade so they're benefiting off
2: of other cinemas. Yeah, really yeah. embracing this concept. Are, are they
1: still part of that? I, I thought Player One was uh, up for sale. Did that get acquired by somebody?
2: That is what I was leading into. It's not official yet, you know, legal hoops to go through. They've announced a agreement to uh, sell Player One Amusement Group to someone called Open Gate Capital. I don't really know who that is or what that means for player 1AG moving forward, Or you know, who's going to take over that side of things in a more specific sense, but it does free up more cash for Cineplex. They're going to be investing in new cinema entertainment centers and new family entertainment centers, and they're in a really good position to do so. It was also Cineplex's biggest year uh, for international programming, which all told delivered 10% of their annual box office. Office revenues. Daniel, I actually got a chance to speak with Ellis Jacob, CEO of Cineplex, on the heels of that quarterly earnings call, and that is one of the things uh, that we discussed: the role of international content. Whether that's you know Bollywood content is, is certainly something that has seen a number of, of very successful films released cinematically in Canada over this last year, the role of international releases in Cineflex's overall distribution strategy.
3: Yeah, the international programming is something that we are very focused on, and over COVID, we basically spent a considerable amount of time on our data. We have, I think, one of the best loyalty programs in the business in the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we first set it up, people said to me, what do you need a loyalty program given your market share? It wasn't about that. It was about the data. And we basically know what our guests like, what they want to see, what they want to eat. And why did we do so well on international is because we can use that data to know where these individuals from, what they like to see. Mm -hmm. And we even use artificial intelligence because we scan the countries where the movies are coming from Mm -hmm. and look at what social media discussions are in those countries and how to play it, where to play it, and what the showtimes are.
2: And Daniel, something that Ellis mentioned in that quote was actually something that, as our listeners were here later in the episode, which also came up uh, in my interview with Tim Richards at View, the use of AI by both of these cinema chains. Obviously, a very big buzzword of a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of possibilities, uh, in, in pretty much every industry, I would imagine. For Cineplex specifically, Daniel, as you know, they have, uh, their loyalty program is like combined with a bunch of other large Canadian companies. So they get a ton of of data on what what their customers, or maybe even people who are not their customers or who are very rare moviegoers. They get a lot of data on what they're interested in and are able to translate that, the use of AI, to a very uh, specific programming that allows them to really maximize the revenue they can earn from, you know, pockets across the country attending these international films.
3: We have, like I said, the great data. Mm-hmm. So we are able to uh, market, uh, you know, to you in a very uh, specific way. I, uh, you know, I call it, uh, you know, exact marketing instead of carpet bombing. Mm-hmm. And don't repeat this, but I'll give you a great example. Do you know, remember the movie Hit 2? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, when Warner Brothers was uh, releasing the movie, I had the uh, director and producer uh, come to uh, Canada. They did an event because the movie was filmed uh, in Canada and in in certain places. Mm -hmm. And the uh, tough part for Canada is we don't usually do well with horror movies. So we opened the movie and it was kind of okay. Then what we did is we basically sent uh, a, a notification to everybody that saw the first one, but didn't see the second one. The next weekend the numbers got stronger, and then we went back to everybody that saw a horror movie that didn't see it. By the time the movie ended, it was the highest percentage of a horror film that played in Canada.
2: So, yeah, Daniel, a really successful uh, successful data strategy for Cineplex, a really successful showing for international content. Average international content takes 4% of box office. For North American chains, Cineplex, that's 10%. Certainly something that helps them and would help any chain, Weather a period where not so much is coming out at the box office, which thankfully thank goodness it is almost over for us here with the release of dune
1: now we know that Cinéplex isn't the only major Canadian circuit even though they are the largest they've got competition from Landmark Cinemas of Canada which is owned by the Belgian super circuit Kinepolis, a multinational chain with cinemas in a number of countries around the world rebecca they also reported their financials from 2023 Looks like the numbers in the box office were up by 21% across the entire Kinepolis network of theaters compared with those numbers in 2022. That was driven by a 20.6% bump in attendance last year as compared to 2022 and an increase in sales per visitor. So we're seeing a very nice rebound. In terms of big multinational circuits of this scale, and looking at some of the biggest headlines from 2023 from the Cannepolis Group, the chain saw six new IMAX screens open in Canada, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, and Spain last year. And they also signed an agreement to continue their third-party PLF screens by bringing in 21 new ScreenX auditoriums, with the first five of those, Rebecca, opening this very month. So Kinepolis, another big investor in the CJ4D Plex panoramic screen concept For our listeners that don't know what ScreenX is, it's basically a 270-degree screen, which is a triptych of screens. Think Cinerama in the digital era. That's essentially what ScreenX is bringing to the table. Great expansion of that concept for Kinepolis.
2: Yeah, Daniel, and they're also, as we learned from the earnings call, uh, focusing on elevating their standard experience as well as providing the premium experience. They are rolling out a laser projection, as are uh, many other chains in North America and globally. 59% 59% of, uh, of their uh, global screen count currently is equipped with sustainable laser projection with 75 additional installations planned for 2024. And yeah, a lot of premier VIP seats and, and Laser Ultra in North America, which includes, Daniel, as you mentioned, Landmark Cinemas of Canada and the United States chain MJR Cinemas.
1: Yeah, uh, great growth, great recovery, positive, positive signs that we're hearing from these uh, from these earnings calls. Obviously, we are expecting uh, a down year in twenty twenty four. But uh, let's not resign ourselves to that fate just yet. We've got an important recovery starting this weekend with the release of Dune Part 2. And keeping things on the positive side, Rebecca, you also had a very good interview with the current CEO of View International, Tim Richards, going over some of the latest updates going into that company, another big multinational circuit. Now VIEW did have an important new executive hire, adding Chief Operating Officer Matt Ayer, a Regal and Cineworld veteran to its uh, core group of executives. So an exciting time for VIEW as it continues growing. It's adding more veteran leadership. Rebecca, you go into a lot more detail of what's going on at VIEW International. That's coming up in the feature interview part of this episode just after the break. And of course, for those of you wanting to hear the latest earning reports from other companies in the sector, including IMAX, Marcus Corp, and AMC, wait for us a couple of weeks. We're still waiting for those calls to happen. This is just uh, an update of everything we have in so far. And what so far, so good, right? So far, so good. Yeah, the
2: general update from uh, from Tim Richards was positive, as you'll hear. I uh, talked a lot about the use of AI and programming and just uh, a general overview of the industry as we get closer and closer to CinemaCon, which kind of makes me nervous to say, because that means we have an issue to finish, but that's neither here nor there.
1: And that is coming up right after the break. Rebecca Pauly's interview with Tim Richards, the Chief Executive Officer of View International. Well, I
0: think right now, looking at 2024, there's some great movies coming out this year, mm-hmm. but not enough of them. Mm-hmm. And and I think we're really feeling the brunt of the strikes in real time. And so I look at this year, there's unfortunately nothing we can do. It is going to be a horrible, horrible year. But there is that light coming out uh, at the end of this year, and in 25 and 26, there's a big wave of movies coming, which keeps all of us very excited about the future. Mm-hmm. So because there's nothing we can do this year, I look at this year as a foundation laying year. This is the time to really make sure that we have everything in place to capitalize mm-hmm. on the movies that are coming at the end of this year and in 25. So we are spending our time refurbishing. We're rolling out a lot of uh, recliner seats in our in cinemas. And with staffing, we're looking at what changes we need to make to make sure we got the right team in place and, and so forth. And Matt brings... He's one of the most highly respected operators in the world. I mean, he's been around for 35 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our paths crossed uh, when we were both at Warner Brothers together many, many years ago. And, you know, he is someone who just loves what he does and happens to be very, very good at it. Mm -hmm. So I think having Matt join the team that we have right now will further strengthen our team. And, you know, most of the team have been with me since I started the company and we've had kind of we've got a little bit of kind of new blood coming in, too, which has been great.
2: Yeah, that's that's absolutely essential. I mean, it's interesting framing 2024 as a year to kind of step back because we've had you know, that was how a lot of, of a lot of people and I think rightly so treated 2020, 2021 like there's. Not much we can do. That was our first period of kind of yeah. reassessment. And then we go jump back into a period with more movie releases. Not enough, but more. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now we get a second shot at that at that kind of break. I mean, you could, you could, I feel like there's a lot to be learned from last year, from from Barbie, from Barbenheimer, when it comes to to marketing. I mean, View's always been pretty good at marketing in terms of innovation. It's not just the same, like here's a clip the studio put online. You know, yeah. what are your thoughts on? You know, you said updating seating and, and staffing. What are the other maybe priorities moving forward this year that are you know softer priorities? I guess maybe not related to buying screens or you know, up upgrading technology and things like that.
0: Well, I think I mean I mean just just looking at the movies, if you were to ask me, you know, what keeps me up at night, well, my first response would be I I always sleep well at night, but <laughs> I think if I were to lose sleep at night, it would be on the supply of films, not mm-hmm. the demand. You know, and I think what we've proven in the last few years is that our audiences never left us. Mm-hmm. They just want more movies and if you look at the films that have been released, I mean we have broken so many records. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at last year alone, you know with with Avatar being the third highest grossing movie of all time. You had Super Mario Brothers, you know, mm-hmm. the largest animation film ever. Barbie, the third largest non-sequel. You know, it goes on and on mm-hmm. and on. And then you have, and then you have like Oppenheimer. I mean, the fact that Oppenheimer did nine hundred and fifty million dollars. I mean, it's an extraordinary movie. Mm-hmm. Probably, you know, arguably one of Chris Nolan's best movies. Only, Not he, only, of art. only I, he
2: could I, make a movie that's like 90, you know, three hours of people talking. So, so riveting. Yeah. But it is three hours of people talking. Yeah,
0: it is. It's a biopic. And mm-hmm. the fact that it did 950 million, you know, anyone who questions whether older, mature audiences have returned just mm-hmm. needs to look at that number. And you look at in, you know, in 22 when Belfast was released, Mm -hmm. you know, Belfast at the time was one of the highest grossing black and white films ever. And, you know, it did 16 million pounds in the UK. And, you know, that was a story about a 10 year an autobiographical story about a 10-year-old growing up in the Troubles in Ireland,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, that did those kind of numbers. And then it was beaten by this first-time director in Italy with, I can never pronounce the name of it, it's, it's always Tomorrow's, it, it, d- 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 domani. But in any event, it was an extraordinary film on mm-hmm. a tough subject, but you look at the numbers that it has done in Italy, mm-hmm. you know, and that's an older, mature audience, and it's also very female-slanted because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's a very tough film about domestic abuse, but mm-hmm. it's done in a very life is beautiful kind of way, you know, and, but with a tough message behind it. So older audio audiences, you look at Ticket to Paradise, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, even recently you look at the numbers that poor things have done and there's no shortage of, oh, extraordinary.
2: And we wouldn't be talking about it if it had just like come out on streaming somewhere.
0: Yeah. No way. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And then you look at, you know, the kind of um, event programming, you know, Taylor Swift, Came out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. you know, highest grossing concert film ever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's there's no shortage of evidence Mm -hmm. on the demand side. And that's why I think I'm particularly bullish on, on going forward, which has not. Answered your question at all. No, I just wanted to
2: come. I mean, Five Nights at Freddy's that that shocked yeah. me. That's what people say. Yeah. Oh, Gen Z doesn't want to come to the movies. Gen Z yeah. came out and saw this movie that they could have seen on their phone. Like,
0: yeah, yeah. but smile. I mean, it's, horror as a genre mm-hmm. has really been outperforming in the last couple of years. I and mean, mm-hmm. maybe it's kind of a statement of where we all are after the <laughs> pandemic. But, but, uh, but it has been really interesting to see the numbers that horror have done but but I, I think it's evidence and particularly with local films across europe which that is one of the benefits of an international operator that you don't see domestically where the consumer is kind of really focused on hollywood and not just hollywood plus italian or german or polish mm-hmm. or like Dutch italian films.
2: filmmakers didn't have a strike that Shut everything
0: down. So So now now, uh, things that we are doing, I mean, I think outside of the physical side right now, we've really been highly focused on our customer's journey and really looking at our investment in digital and how we can really help with new technologies Mm -hmm. to make their experience easier and quicker and more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at and testing a whole bunch of new initiatives right now to try and stream that experience. Pricing and our use of AI have what have been really driving the successes that we've been experiencing across Europe in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And AI in particular is something that, you know, we were a global leader. You know, that we, we started with AI eight years ago. You know, we've been oh, doing whoa. this for quite a while now. It took us two years to build the model, mm-hmm. 53 models in beta, until we realized that we were really on to something special. Mm-hmm. And it is a classic AI interpretive model that is a little bit better today than it was yesterday.
3: Mm-hmm. You It'll know, a
0: little better constant- tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And as a consequence, we, you know, factually, we play close to 50% more movies than our competitors do because our AI knows what people like around each one of our cinemas. Mm-hmm. We know if there is an Asian group that wants to watch Bollywood, we know if there's a Turkish community, we mm-hmm. know if there's an older audience that want more mature films, the AI has that data and programs our screens accordingly. And you know, if you look at any of our cinemas, the programming, you can see it. I mean, it is, even when I saw this number, I didn't believe it at first, Mm-hmm. But 46% of the films that we screen are fo- in foreign language, 46? 46%. That is our AI. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the most incredible tools that we've been using for a long time now. Mm-hmm. That's so great. so we continue to invest.
2: And that's so interesting because, I mean, you can think of all the uses of AI in, in terms of you know, streamlining marketing in terms of, of organizing showtimes with programming. I mean, I, I think there's a, maybe a fear in some corners. You know, you hear AI doing film programming and you're like, oh, no, it's, it's robots just, you know, you're putting in data and they're spitting out the, you know, telling you what to do. And there's still the people involved in this process. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's yeah. still curated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. No, for sure. Like It's I mean, a, it's a
2: benefit not- to programming. It doesn't replace it. <laughs> Yeah, we don't kind of
0: plug it in on January 1 and then do Mm -hmm. some uh, help with it at the end of the year. No, it's constant. But that's what makes it so effective. Mm -hmm. It's exactly that.
2: So the strikes are over. Knock on wood, there's not going to be an an AMPTP that'll, that'll, you know, once the production cycle kind of gets back into the swing of things, as you said, 2025 moving forward we're in a much better place in terms of just the amount and the diversity of, of titles that we're going to see. Do you think, even without the strike in, in the equation, how do you feel about the film mix that you're getting, especially because you are so diverse in programming all these you know, international films for foreign language titles, like mid-range films or so, so those films that aren't blockbusters and that don't need to open to 100 million? I mean, how, what are your thoughts on the, the mid-range film, I guess? <laughs>
0: Well, I think, I mean, again, even with the mid-range films, I mean, I think it's very much a question of, you know, success. Well, not a question, but, you know, success breeds success. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that in all of our markets where the local and independent small and mid-range films were a little bit slower to return to the market. Mm-hmm. And and I think there was a bit of a concern on, you know, was this a subscription issue? Mm -hmm. You know, was this audience now watching those films at home? And I think you just need to look at the numbers right now for all of those films. And I know we're in the award season right now with award Mm -hmm. season films, but notwithstanding that, there is an extraordinary number of very, very high quality, small, crossover art films and mid-range films right now that have done really well. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers who are looking at that and are thinking, you know, this is the way, the old model of releasing and getting some attention through a big screen experience and then using that as a catalyst for home entertainment mm. after is there and remains there.
2: Essentially treating the theatrical window or window, not in the exclusivity window, but the theatrical experience is part of the marketing campaign for the later life of the picture. And it's like, you know what? thats People are still paying for the tickets. Butts are still in seats. I say that's great.
0: <laughs> well, and the thing is, too, is, is that kind of expression alongside of, you know, we're the engine that drives all the ancillary revenue streams. Mm-hmm. is close to 100 years old, and it hasn't changed. And I think during the pandemic, you know, all the studios had an opportunity to try a different model. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the learnings coming out of that is that the losses weren't tens of millions, they were hundreds of millions. And, mm-hmm. and filmmakers and talent do not want, sorry, they, they don't dream of making a movie for a small screen, you know they like the rest of us like to enjoy a film on a big screen with others socially. So that it hasn't was, changed.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just look at Warner Brothers twenty twenty one slate, and well, there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but I think you know, I mean, Jason Kilar when when he was kind of running the studio at the time, you know, he was ex Hulu. You know, he alienated everyone, and he was obsessed. With subscription service at all costs, uh, to, you know, to the point where you know he announced, as you you know just mentioned, that all their films would be released theatrically. Fortunately, you know Warner Brothers under David Zasloff are the way they used to be, and they're they've been you know a huge friend to the industry, and they've produced some incredible movies. You know, you know you don't have to go too much further than Barbie alone, <laughs> but it's not just about Barbie. They they're giving us a full slate of films, which mm-hmm. has been really exciting. Well, I mean, look, I think the sobering realities are, you know we have gone through as an industry an extraordinarily difficult time. Mm-hmm. And you know I, th- I think it's made been made even more difficult because in two thousand and nineteen, we set box office records worldwide. Mm-hmm. We, as a company broke all records. We as a company broke all records again at the end of our first quarter and to end of February in two thousand and twenty we were not a broken industry, Mm -hmm. you know, and for us, we weren't a broken company or a broken team. And suddenly life stopped. You know, Mm -hmm. if things had been really difficult, you know, it would have maybe made it a little bit easier. But when you you go through, we've gone through in the last four years on the back of a record-breaking run, made it even that more difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, a lot of companies... Have restructured. People have lost huge amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Investors, shareholders, management have lost massive amounts of money. And mm-hmm. um, there have been and, industry-wide
2: layoffs. I mean, just looking at what's happening to you know yeah. marketing teams across it's on huge. the studio side and and the exhibition side, I'm like, it's, it's
0: yeah. And then and then and then we started to have a fragile recovery. People are starting to feel good about things. Barbenheimer came out, <laughs> blew everybody away. And then WJ went on strike and Sagafra went on strike. And basically, you know, I mean, everybody talks about the six-month period. And it really wasn't six months because it wasn't formally ratified until December. Mm. And production didn't really start until the second week of January. Mm. So, you know, we lost a good six, even seven months last year of production. Mm. And that hit the exhibition community worldwide very, very significantly. Mm-hmm. And this was not a U.S. issue with production, because if you look at the numbers in the UK during that period, 75 percent of all film and television workers were unemployed. So this had a profound impact mm-hmm. globally. And, you know, a lot of local unions in different countries all went out in sympathy of WGA and SAG-AFTRA. And, you know, the realities are if you have your sights and dreams on Hollywood one day, which most talent do, then, you know, you're not going to want to potentially jeopardize that. Yeah. So you can own sympathy. And that's what people did. So we saw, you know, production slowdowns in all of our markets across Europe and in the UK particularly. Mm-hmm. You know, there were cobwebs at the studios here. It was It was unbelievable. And, you know, right before Christmas there was a study done by the smaller cinema operators in the UK and 45% were operating at a loss Mm -hmm. and half of them did not believe they would survive for another three months. So this is before a very tough 24. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately those are kind of some of the sobering realities. You know, this is something that we recognized last September and made sure that we were well placed when this happened Mm. but you know it's still going to be a very challenging year for a lot of companies i've been in the industry for 35 years Mm. and i don't think i've been as excited about the future and as bullish about the future as i am now you know we Mm. are we are going to have an incredible run ahead of us and you know we're doing our best to get ready for it
1: and that was my colleague Rebecca Polly interviewing the View International Chief Executive Officer Tim Richards. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast. Earlier you also heard from Cineplex CEO Ellis Jacob and a big thank you to Ellis for joining us on this episode again. To hear more from Rebecca and myself on this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. New episodes come out every Thursday. And next Thursday, as we said earlier, we've got a big one, a recap of everything on the global opening weekend of doing part two. Talk to you guys next week.